Alison. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Sarah. So here we are kicking off the new year with the prospect of more strikes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, pension reform is back on the table. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Before the COVID pandemic, we mm. had President Macron hell-bent on changing the rules in France to have us work longer. It's a reform that other presidents before him have tried and failed to do. Yeah, so it's become Macron's big mission. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it made a lot of people angry. There were lots of strikes and uh, protests. Yeah, and he ended up dropping it or at least putting it on the back burner. I mean, COVID got in the way, among other things. Yeah, so that slowed everything down. But now Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne uh, this week has unveiled the government's latest attempt. Mm -hmm. Now, the original plan was upping the legal age of retirement from 62 to 65. Now they've agreed to modify that slightly. It's due to go up to 64 by 2030. Yeah, so the minimum age to be entitled to a full pension will be increased by three months a year, starting this year, until 2027. And then you'll have to have worked at least 43 years to get your full pension. There will be exceptions, however, for people who started working before the age of 20. Also, some categories such as the police and firefighters will be able to retire earlier. Yeah, so the government argues and has always argued, right, that that French people are living longer, so we need to work longer to keep the pension system financially sustainable. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is some sense in talking like that, although Mm -hmm. whether or not people can actually find employment. Yeah, uh, after the age of 62, you know, can be discussed. Now, the, the government's proposal will be debated in the National Assembly next month. It's for sure going to get heated because, remember, Macron's party no longer has a majority in Parliament. So there will be pushback and probably some compromising. Yeah, it's likely Macron will have to make a deal with the right. Most of the other opposition parties are completely opposed to the changes on all the trade unions are. They'll be gearing up. There's already a general strike day announced for next week likely the first of several in the weeks and months to come. So, Sarah, speaking of pensions, a group of around 40 ageing riflemen from former French colonies in West Africa and who fought alongside the French army will finally be allowed to keep their French state pensions and go home for good. Okay, so these are what we know as the tirailleurs Senegalais, the Senegalese riflemen, right? Yeah, yeah, there are just a few survivors of this African fighting corps that was originally created in the mid-19th century in Senegal. Uh, later, it was expanded and it drew in men from other French colonies, such as Mauritania, uh, what was known as French Sudan, now Mali, Guinea and Niger. Mm. So these men fought with the French army in every battle from the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, Uh, through the two world wars, the war in Indochina, that was mainly in Vietnam, and then in Algeria. Some of them enrolled voluntarily, but many of them were conscripted. Right. I mean, as French subjects, I imagine they they likely had little choice. (laughs) Precisely. Mm. Around 200,000 of these men fought in World War I, and an estimated 20,000 died fighting to defend France. They played, for example, a key role in the Battle of Verdun, which is often seen as a turning point in the Allied victory. But their contribution to France's war efforts has been largely overlooked. Yeah, 
And while they do get a state pension of 950 euros a month to qualify for that up until now, they've had to spend at least six months here in France. This has been rough. Mm. You know, many of these guys are in their 90s and, you know, living far away from their families. There are soldiers like 94-year-old Yoho Diao. He's one of the tirailleurs who will shortly be heading back to Senegal to end his days with his family after spending the last 22 years shuttling backwards and forwards between the two countries every six months. In France, Diao has been living in men's hostels alongside his comrades in arms. I met him in his current humble lodgings in Bondy on the outskirts of Paris. Yoho Diao welcomes us to his room, number 221 at the Adoma Hostel in Bondy. The bedroom is small but impeccably tidy. The crisp white sheets on his bed are smoothed out with the precision of a man who spent his entire adult life in the army. There were 22 of us tirailleurs living here at the outset. Now there are only 12 of us left. The others have died. A few of those 22 are sitting next to him in a line of chairs next to the bed. Let me introduce you. This is Mr. Mordiop, a veteran of Indochina. He's 95 years old. He's in poor health. He has a lot of diseases. And this is Mr. Mboj Gordi, a veteran of Indochina and Algeria. Diao is 94. He's small, thin, but incredibly energetic. While some of the men are wearing traditional West African tunics, he sports a smart black suit with an impressive array of medals on his breast pocket. This is the Senegalese Legion of Honour. I have the French Legion of Honour, but it's the war medals that mean the most to me. Diao's attachment to France and his pride in defending the country's former colonial ruler is strong. He recalls singing the Marseillaise every day at school in Saint-Louis in Senegal. And he's as proud to sing it today with his comrades. Diao was born in Saint-Louis in the north of Senegal in 1928. In 1951, at the age of 23, he enrolled in the army, continuing a long family tradition. My uncle served in World War I. His face was disfigured. My grandfather also fought in World War I. My father fought in the Niger campaign. All my cousins were in the army. If I hadn't joined, I'd have been a laughingstock. He joined the 24th Regiment of Tirailleurs and in 1952 was mobilised to defend France in the Indochina War. It was a mixed regiment. Europeans, Moroccans, Algerians, Senegalese. There was no discrimination. We worked together on safety operations. He worked as a nurse and stretcher-bearer, first in Indochina, where he took part in the Battle of Tonkin, and later in Algeria. Diao opens a brown envelope and takes out around 20 black-and-white photos, souvenirs of those years as a rifleman alongside the French. 
This is Lucien Fernand. He died at my feet in Indochina in 1954 in the north of Vietnam. We were the same age and we were always together. When he was shot, he said, Diao, I'm dying. Please let my parents know how it happened. I tried to find them when I got back, but I couldn't. This man was called Nugzan. He was from Alsace. He was killed too. Dial returned to Senegal in 1955 and then the following year he was sent to Algeria where he saved and lost many more of his comrades in arms. Remembering all these comrades that died is what kept me going in the army, just thinking about them. In 1960, when Senegal obtained its independence from France, Diao had to choose between remaining French or taking Senegalese nationality. He felt his place was in Senegal, training the country's new independent armed forces. But in France, a new battle was beginning, getting recognition by the French state and equal pension rights. In 1959, just before independence, France had frozen the tirailleurs' pensions. Whether they were living in Senegal or in Paris, they lived in poverty. In the early 2000s, Diao started returning to France to campaign with veterans' rights groups to unfreeze their pensions. They succeeded in 2006. And then later, in 2017, then-President François Hollande granted French citizenship to a group of 28 former tirailleurs, including Diao. They currently get a monthly state pension of 950 euros, but it's been conditional on them spending at least six months of the year in France. Growing old in a migrant workers' hostel has been challenging. Life here is difficult. You have to go out for everything, bottles of water, food. We take the bus to get to medical appointments. Sometimes we get pushed around. There are pickpockets. They tell us to watch out, but we're not strong enough to fight back. Luckily, we have each other. It would be much worse if we were separated. Being brothers in arms gives us moral support. With the changes introduced early February, Diao and his comrades will be able to keep their state pensions and go home permanently to spend what, for many, will be their final days. It's come late, but better late than never, of course. We've lost a lot of our comrades, which saps your morale. We've been dying of low morale. Now we have a sense of satisfaction to be able to go home in a dignified way and be near our grandchildren and children. It's comforting and perhaps it will help us live that bit longer. What a story. Um, what I find interesting is he still seems quite attached to France. Mm-hmm. I mean, even after being essentially tossed aside after Senegal's independence. Yeah, he still really sees himself as French, mm-hmm. you know, as he told me, you know, Senegal was French for 400 years. And right. he grew up in a very, very French culture. He learned the language, you know, and he, he feels 
totally French Senegalese. That's interesting. Yeah, so it, there's no question of him slamming mm. what is basically his country. Um, so he is rather positive, but others are not okay. so positive. There are tirailleurs who are understandably very bitter about the way they've been treated. Yeah, but the, so these new rules, right, letting them to go home with their pensions is, is a relatively good ending to this all, right? It certainly has given the men a sense of, as he says, satisfaction, mm. you know, recompense for this very, very long battle. There are still some outstanding issues, such as what happens to their health care. Uh, what the tirailleurs also want to obtain is the right to use their French health care coverage back home in Senegal. That's a point which is still under discussion. We are talking, though, only about 40 men. Uh, for right. the moment. There could be another 40 or so who haven't yet been identified. Mm. It's hoped that the publicity around a new film that was released just last week might get some to come forward. Ah, so this is the Tirailleur film. It is. The yeah. English version is being released as Father and Son. Uh, the film tells the story of a 17-year-old who was rounded up in his village in Senegal and sent to the Western Front. <laughs> So the boy's father, who doesn't speak a word of French, chooses to enroll illicitly to protect his son and organize their escape. So the father is played by Omar C. You know, he's famous, right, for playing the gentleman burglar Arsène Lupin in the TV series. Yeah, he's a very, very popular actor. Mm. And he's also co-producer of this film. C is of Senegalese Mauritanian descent, and he speaks his native Fulani language throughout the film. The two men are utterly lost in the beginning, especially the father, who's thrust into the horror of the trenches of Verdun. <laughs> In this scene, just moments before the tirailleurs leap out of the trenches and charge into no man's land, a French officer yells, after this battle, you will no longer be indigenous, you will be French. The father literally can't understand what on earth they're doing fighting for France, and he tries to get them out, but the son, who speaks good French, a bit like Yoro Diao, who we've been hearing about, he finds his place in the ranks of the French army. He gets promoted and ends up having to give his father orders. Ah, so the film's dramatic tension there, I see. Um, did the film play a role in moving things on for the existing tirailleurs? Almost certainly, mm. and it's not the first time. Back in 2006, another film, Indigène, uh, translated as Days of Glory, about the tirailleur from North Africa and made by Rachid Bouchareb, who is of French-Algerian descent, drove then-President Jacques Chirac to work towards unfreezing the guy's pensions. Yeah, it just shows how powerful cinema can be. So the Tirailleurs Sénégalais were founded as a battalion, as an armed force, in 1857 by Napoleon III. Right, who died 150 years ago this week, on the 9th of January, 1873. He was born Charles-Louis-Napoléon Bonaparte. Hmm. And nephew of the great, if for some people anyway, Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> the son of Napoleon's youngest brother. Charles-Louis was the first French president ever, and as Napoleon III, its last monarch. His family had been living in exile after his uncle's abdication in 1815. After the 1848 revolution, he wanted to return to French politics. 
Uh, clearly, the Bonaparte name still uh, held some sway. Mm-hmm. He won the presidency in December of that year, appealing to the left and the right. And he moved his residence to the Elysee Palace, which today remains the presidential palace. He ruled for four years and then seized power by force because the Constitution only allowed for one term in office. He failed to get an amendment passed to extend it. So he organized a coup, dissolved parliament, and he ruled for another 19 years until 1870. I suppose that's when he moved into the Tuileries Palace, which is now part of the Louvre Museum. Yeah, yeah. And you could go see his apartments, Mm. the Napoleon Mm. III apartments. As emperor, he modernized the French economy. His government built infrastructure, railways, ports, canals. He also opened up French markets to foreign goods. He negotiated trade agreements with Britain and other European countries. Okay, so all very positive. Mm. But his rule was not without controversy. For sure. I mean, not the least of which is he expanded France's overseas empire, which, depending on your take, is positive or negative. Um, He established French rule in New Caledonia in 1853. We've talked about this before and the current move to, to gain independence. He also solidified France's colonization of Senegal. Senegal became France's main base in West Africa under his rule. Dakar was one of the empire's most important cities. And Napoleon III established control of southern Vietnam, including Saigon, in 1862. The next year, he established a protectorate over Cambodia. Also setting the stage for France's Indochina colony in the late 1870s. Mm-hmm. France's empire increased by two-thirds during his rule. Wow. And to, yeah. To do this, he modernized the French Navy, making it the second most powerful in the world after Britain's. And this is when he created this new force of colonial troops, the Tirailleurs. Yeah, yeah. He also expanded the Foreign Legion, which had been founded in 1831. We've actually talked about that also in a previous podcast episode. So here, closer to home, Mm -hmm. Napoleon III apparently transformed the capital, Paris. Yeah, yeah. The capital had seen a population boom in the early 19th century. And Napoleon appointed Baron George Eugène Haussmann to mm-hmm. oversee the expansion and renovation. That is a well-known name. He annexed 11 towns on the outskirts of Paris, which enlarged Paris to its current boundaries, um, increasing the arrondissement from 12 to the 20 we have today. Haussmann also worked on water and sanitation. He built an aqueduct to bring in clean water and laid hundreds of kilometers of pipes to distribute it throughout the city. Hmm. But all of this, you know, great stuff, but it required tearing down mm-hmm. thousands of old buildings. Uh, he also built the city's famous avenues, you know, and they're aligned with what are now known as Haussmannian buildings. Yeah, the sort of iconic Parisian apartment building, yeah. which, you know, replaced much smaller, older medieval style, you know, streets. It's it's, it's a big shift in what the city looked like. Yeah. Um, just a huge amount of building at the time, including the largest theater in the world at the time, the Paris mm-hmm. Opera, which was designed by Charles Garnier. Mm-hmm. You also have the Gare de Lyon, Gare du Nord, lots and lots of construction. Napoleon's reign, though, ended after he declared war on Prussia. Uh, Otto von Bismarck was looking to expand the empire. Napoleon wanted to stop him, but his much smaller army was defeated. Napoleon was captured and dethroned. On September the 4th, 1870, a group of deputies proclaimed the return of the Republic and the end of the Second Empire. The newly elected National Assembly in 1871 negotiated peace between France and Germany. Napoleon was released. He decided to go into exile in England. He Mm. moved into a large country house in a village about a half hour by train from London. And then after gallstone surgery, he'd actually been suffering from this throughout the 1860s, he became very ill, and he died on January 9th, 1873. His body is in a crypt, along with that of his son, at St. Michael's Abbey in Farnborough. 
So it's a new year, new laws and regulations. In France, there are changes in the world of cryptocurrency, for better or worse, depending on who you are. (laughs) Probably worse uh, for me. I know, Sarah, cryptocurrency, this is one of your little, you know, pet subjects. And I have (laughs) to... Trying to to understand it. Yeah, I know. Good on you. You do all the understanding. It's still a bit of a black hole for me. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's still not really my thing. But I'm interested because France seems to be becoming a hub for the crypto world in Europe. Um, And the government is starting to recognize it, but also wanting to rein it in, as it were. Mm. Um, So as of January 1st, there have been an evolution in French tax law. It'll actually make it less expensive for small smaller investors um, to invest, which could be interesting. Um, There's also new regulations in the works to require crypto platforms to get a regulatory license as soon as they start operating in France. Because for now, they're unlicensed? Well, actually, over 60 platforms are allowed to currently operate in France without a full license. They've been given this sort of grace period until 2026. Mm. Yeah, so it means they're kind of going largely under the radar The collapse of the FTX crypto exchange in November, though, showed the dangers of letting companies off like this with little oversight. Right. So this is this American company, FTX, that filed for bankruptcy, and its rather young CEO was accused of fraud. Exactly. Sam Bankman-Fried. So he's accused of illegally spending customer funds. The bankruptcy may have cost billions of dollars to investors, lenders, and especially customers, over a million saw their deposits in the exchange frozen, essentially overnight, they disappeared. Some fifty to 60,000 of these customers are French. Hmm. These are customers who invested anywhere from a few thousand to tens of thousands of euros. Like everywhere, of course, some of these people were inexperienced investors. They put in their life savings and lost it all. Oh, dear. Mm. I read a quote in the, the Parisian newspaper from a man. Of course, he was anonymous, didn't want to admit to it. But he said that he'd put 35,000 euros, his and his kids' life savings into crypto via the FTX. It's all gone. Yeah, yeah. And even experienced crypto investors have lost, and they're feeling the sting. There's a French um, Twitter feed, uh, Crypto Confessions, and (laughs) one user said they lost $70,000 and feel guilty. Of course, this also anonymous. No one wants to really admit it. Another admitted to losing 200000 and said their fingers were trembling while writing this confession. So it's gotten quite emotional. Um, Ronan Journeau is a lawyer in Paris. He's focused on crypto and has been actually advising some of these victims who joined a telegram group created to connect people who lost money in FTX. I spoke to him about who these French customers are and what they could hope to get from a legal proceeding that's actually happening very far outside of France. It's very uh, violent. uh, The the website closed and uh, a lot of people had a lot of money on the platform. In France, we estimate that the number of victims is uh, 55,000. And in the Telegram group, there is uh, more than 2,000 victims. What drew you to wanting to get involved? Me, I've been uh, involved just uh, to help. Of course, uh, there can be a law firm who can help to to lodge a criminal procedure or to, to help for the civil procedure. But I think at the beginning, the most important thing was just to to organize a group that the people discuss. 
Are these people who were experimenting with cryptocurrency? Are these people who put their life savings in it? Like, who are these people? Yeah, there is all kind. You know, there is people who just lost 1,000 or 2,000 euros, and it is not a lot. Or even people who lost uh, much more, but uh, it's still not a lot. But there is also victims who lost almost everything and because uh, FTX was a very... Even if it's after all this, uh, we can think that it's stupid to put money in a, in a company uh, located in Bahamas and everything. But uh, before it was a very respected company. So there are people who put almost all their money. And I, I have been contacted by people telling me, oh, I put all my savings. Uh, so how can I get my money back? In crypto, we have um, often people who it's their first investment, and so they are not very aware about uh, all the good uh, things that we should do with uh, the money. It means that uh, not put all the things in the same place, especially with very young company. Do, do you find that, that some of your work on this Telegram channel is a little bit like a psychologist? Yes, of course, there is a the civil procedure, the criminal procedure and everything, but there is also the psychological part. And uh, I think it was the most uh, important. People need to, to talk uh, to each other, to just to know that they are not alone. And I know there have been people who were very, very bad psychologically and uh, we were talking with them, we were exchanging with them and uh, just to, to say that uh, there is a lot of people in your situation and uh, it was... I think the most important in the beginning. Uh, are you personally a, a, a victim of the uh, FTX collapse? No, no, I'm not because I never put one euro in a company located in Bahamas, of course. <laughs> Interesting. So for you, for you, that was a red flag, like right away. Yes, uh, of course, there, there is in the crypto ecosystem people uh, which are against uh, regulating uh, and everything. But for me, it's very important to regulate the players who are too big. And me, I will not put uh, one euro in a company located in Seychelles, in Bahamas and, and everything. And we, we have seen also another big players, uh, AAX, who collapsed also, which were located in, uh, in Seychelles or Hong Kong. And uh, we need to have big players in Europe. So I think it's better to give your phone to companies regulated. How do you think this whole situation um, has affected the way, or how will it affect the way people approach cryptocurrency in France? Yes, I think um, it was not uh, FTX was not the only problem this year, and um, it's a very young ecosystem and which is developing a lot. For me, I think it's something bad for good. We have to regulate more these players and uh, this is what we are doing in the in the European Union so we'll have a, a bill soon to more regulate uh, these kind of players and um, even the victims of FTX are really investors in crypto and of course uh, there is people saying oh I invest in crypto I will never put uh, any more money in it but uh, it's a very not a lot of people it will not stop the development of the ecosystem. So now looking legally, you know, how much weight do French users of FTX have in this whole proceeding as it moves forward? Bankruptcy um, in a court in the Bahamas, bankruptcy in the United States. Yeah, there is two steps. Uh, the first is uh, to declare your claim 
uh, on the court uh, in America. So everybody can do it. Uh, you just uh, need to file a form uh, on internet and you can uh, declare your, your claim. And uh, after, uh, it will take some years, huh? uh, but at the end, uh, you could get part of your money back. It will depend uh, how many uh, money we find in the accounts. Uh, so we estimate maybe uh, 20 or 30 or 40 percent. So you're advising these people, you know, first off, just go and file your claim in the American court, the court in Delaware. Yeah, there is a yes. Uh, it is a... Uh, uh, the most important thing to do uh, first. But then it seems like what could be interesting then is after that is sort of the organization. Does it make sense to talk about a, a French group of users and, and customers? Or would it be more like an international group or European group? Like, what are you guys thinking in that in those terms? Yes, after it, uh, it can be interesting to to think about a class action but class action is not against FTX because FTX is in a judicial proceeding so it's not possible so all the class action are open against uh, people who have been uh, telling about the products saying to people oh uh, invest uh, in FTX and everything. It would be a class action sort of against all the advertising around yes, it. Yes, and there is also another possibility for French uh, users. It's when they have been a uh, victim indirectly. For example, if uh, you invest in a French company or in a European company, and this company invested everything in FTX and lose everything. So it's possible to lodge a claim against uh, these uh, companies. And it would be even more easier for them to get their money back than to make a class action in America. It's exactly what happened in uh, the Madoff affair. Uh, there have been a class action in, in America and all, but uh, French uh, victims have lodged claim against French banks or uh, Swiss banks, and they get their money back like that and not uh, in a claim in the US. So he's talking a lot there about regulation. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of the lesson from FTX, although it's been in the works for a while. There's a bill introduced last month in the French parliament that would force companies operating in France like FTX to be licensed by October, which kind of anticipates or, or speeds up a, a European law that's going to be voted probably later this year. This is the Markets in Crypto Assets, the MICA bill that would put in place European-wide regulatory licenses by 2024. So we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us a note at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France, and find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Thursday, 26th of January. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.